Hello, everybody, and welcome to our panel on augmenting people with emerging technologies. So we've got some very exciting uh, speakers here today. Who uh, We have a chairperson, Yvonne Rogers, who will introduce them later on. Um, but first of all, I'd like to give the welcome to country. So we acknowledge the Yulukit Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yulukit Willem are part of the Boon Warang, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders past, present, and to the future. So, um, very exciting little panel happening here. We've got some um, visual aids that we're going to put with you. You should also have a postcard on the back of which is a Twitter feed hash and a Twitter account. There are a few images there that um, some of the panellists have put up for you to have a look at. There's also a video, and if you want to post any questions to the panel, please do it that way if you want. Otherwise, they'll give a short presentation and then we'll have some questions after. Um, we do have our little robots here, and I just wanted to say um, that the, the lovely outfits on the robots were knitted by Sandra from the Wyndham Council Ageing Well Programme. So she has a companion who is a robot and she has knitted some outfits for them. She also mentored the researchers who have been working with her um, and taught them how to knit as well. Um, and while doing that, having, having their little knitting club, they talked with her about her life and shared some stories from their lives. So it was a very nice process. And Leon will tell you a bit more about that project later on. So at this point, I will hand over to the chairperson, Yvonne Rogers, who's come all the way from the UK for us to chair this so, um, and has a good track record in interaction design. So Yvonne will take over now. Thank you very much, Jenny. <laughs> Big round of applause. Um, I arrived from uh, London, I think, two days ago, so I feel a little jet-lagged. So please forgive me if I sound a bit delirious. Um, so as Yeni um, mentioned, the topic of this uh, panel is about augmenting people. But before we start talking about why this is an important topic to discuss, I want to step back a bit um, in the broader context of what's happening in our cities. And I think in Melbourne as well, which is that there is a big push towards making our cities smart. Um, now, you've probably all heard of smart watches and smart cars. Well, it, the, a big thing is about now making it even bigger for smart cities. What do we mean by smart cities? Well, typically, what's meant by smart cities is to try and make them more efficient, more resilient, and to reduce uh, uh, CO2 emissions and also to reduce pollution. And uh, city councils are trying to make their cities um, more efficient and by uh, putting sensors and other technology out into uh, the cities to detect the flow of traffic and the flow of people and with this to use machine learning in order to improve on existing transportation. However, um, although many cities are trying to make them, themselves a bit smarter. There was a recent article in the Scientific American uh, by a woman called uh, Kendra Smith who said um, the inconvenient truth about cities, which is we don't have any smart cities yet. Um, there are many uh, projects, uh, and we might be hearing about those throughout the afternoon and evening, 
um, where lots of money has been put into uh, tech to make uh, smart lampposts and smart um, uh, smart grids. I'm not going to talk about those today, but just to say that these have been quite piecemeal and they haven't really uh, made our city smart. And the reason for this is that they often forget about what is central to our cities. Anyone want to tell me what they think is most central and important in our cities? The people. If you, if you Google smart cities, you'll get lots of images of amazing cities that look really fantastic, but there's not a single person in those uh, infographics. And so often, um, these attempts to make our cities more efficient, they forget about people. And it's people which is central to the culture, to the living, to the way in which our cities run. And that's what the focus of um, our panel is today, is how can we make people smart rather than city smart. And one way in which we can do that, I mean, people are pretty smart already. Let's not forget that. Um, but we can make them smarter by using um, uh, and uh, a range of technologies that are coming out. And our panel are going to discuss some of the research they're doing in order to try and augment and uh, help people and change the way in which they do things. And we could start off by thinking about some of the earlier technologies that we have used um, um, uh, to aid and, and augment people. And one of them is the, the walking stick that has enabled uh, people who are blind and people who, who are um, uh, frail to be able to move around, to have better mobility. And those of us who have uh, poor eyesight, glasses is another way in which it's enabled us to, to see better. Since then, we've had a whole plethora of technologies um, from the, the laptop to Google search to smartphones and so on. I don't need to go through these, but they have extended the way in which we interact with the world. We can talk to each other millions of miles away. We can have we many friends uh, through social media. We can, um, at dinner parties, at our, um, be able to come up with the name of uh, a film uh, actor without having to rack our brains. There are many ways in which we now use our smartphones um, to uh, live our lives. In fact, they've become indispensable. Is there anyone here who has not got their smartphone on them today? Not one. That, I think, speaks volumes. Um, so I'm going to um, uh, now introduce the panel, who are each going to talk a bit about um, different types of technology that uh, they are developing. Um, and we've already heard there's robotics, there's also virtual reality, um, um, are some of these new exciting technologies. Each panel member, you can see them all sitting there getting nervous, are going to speak for about five to eight minutes, and then you get a chance to ask them some questions. And just to get the running order correct, we're going to start off with Matilda in the stripy dress, uh, and then followed by Frank over there in the corner and Kim in the black dress there. And then we are going on to Leon sitting there and Mark in the white shirt. So that's the running order. And to begin, we're going to hand over to Matilda. Well, I should say they've all got different backgrounds in architecture, interaction design, um, and uh, interactive media and dance. And they will introduce themselves anyway to say uh, what their backgrounds is. And this is really important when we're thinking about designing technology for people. So, as I said, to begin, we're going to hand over to Matilda, who's going to talk about uh, how you can design video games to give people, citizens, a voice. 
So thank you very much, Yvonne. And I'd also like to thank the Swinburne uh, University of Technology, and particularly Jenny, for the invitation here today. Um, I'm even more jet-lagged than Yvonne. I arrived last night from Barcelona, although I do have an Australian accent. Um, I've been living in Europe for a couple of years now. So, um, Just to give you a little bit of background information on where I come from, I'm head of studies at the Institute for Advanced Architecture of Catalonia. Uh, it's an institute that was founded about 15 years ago uh, when its founders, well, discovered or saw a change in paradigm in the discipline of architecture where technology was starting to take a more central role. Uh, so the first thing they did was they coined the term advanced architecture and uh, they did a project which was actually the dictionary for advanced architecture. Um, and so they defined what this new discipline was with the, the front runners at the time. Um, at the Institute, about three years ago, we then started a master in city and technology. So we chose not to call it a master in smart cities, um, but a master in city and technology. So understanding how we can give the tools and the knowledge to architects, engineers, and designers who maybe don't have that much knowledge in technology and the applications of technology so that they can become change makers uh, in our city today. Um, one of the, the project that I'm actually going to talk about is a project called Super Barrio. It's a video game, um, and it's looking at understanding how we can engage architects, public entities, and citizens uh, within the practice of designing public space. Um, I don't know how many of you have been to Barcelona? Anyone? Yes. Um, so you do know the Plan Cerda. So basically, Cerda designed a city plan based on blocks. Um, and Barcelona is, has a very big issue with pollution. And so one of the latest strategies of the city is to create what they call super blocks. So instead of having cars going through all the streets of Barcelona, they've made three-by-three three grids, um, and they've basically downsized uh, the traffic within the three-by-three three grid uh, to one lane of traffic from three lanes of traffic. And so this has liberated up a lot of public space. Um, and they did the, the first pilot test of the super block um, right next to our institute, uh, it was a very top-down process. Uh, basically, the city government from one day to the next shut off the roads um, and didn't really do anything more, let's say, as to engaging the citizens within the design process. Um, so the citizens obviously were not very happy about this uh, in the first stages of the project. Um, not only the citizens living in the area, but also the citizens driving through because Barcelona functions with a road that goes one way and then the next road below goes the other way. And so people obviously driving to work were not very happy about having to sort of go all the way around the city instead of just going in a straight line. Um, and so... Uh, within uh, this Master in City and Technology, uh, every year we concentrate on a specific city. We work on specific case studies. Uh, and last year we concentrated on the city of Barcelona and we worked with the case study of the Superblock. Um, so what we decided to do was to understand how we can engage citizens in the design process, uh, educate citizens towards the design of uh, sustainable public spaces, um, but also collect data on what the citizens would like for the design of their public space. Um, so basically, we developed a video game called Super Barrio. Um, I think you've received this postcard, possibly. Um, otherwise, sorry. On this postcard... On the Swinburne postcard, there's also uh, the Twitter account with a few images of the project. And the video of the project. 
Um, and so basically, and I also actually, maybe I can give this out. So you can start playing the Super Barrio game. Um, so basically what we were interested in doing was understanding how we can give citizens tools to engage with the design of public space. Uh, so one of the issues is that most citizens don't actually understand the tools that we use as architects and the urban designers, don't understand how they can engage, how they can give their opinion, um, and how they can actuate these designs in public space. Um, so basically what we did was a 3D visualization of the superblock um, following a series of different, uh, let's say, topics. So ecology, energy, mobility, leisure, and culture. Uh, yeah, and culture. The video game is an open source game which you can download on your tablet or uh, phone, not iPhone, it's an Android game. Um, and so basically the citizens or the people engaging with this game have the possibility of dragging and dropping different modules according to the different topics, so ecology, energy, mobility, leisure and culture, and adding them into the superblock situation. The citizens have the opportunity to play against themselves in a certain sense. So if you, for example, just drag and drop trees... Uh, you'll have a very high rate of ecology, but your economy will go down. And so you visualize the impact of your design decisions, um, and you get scored up against accessibility, economy, productivity, ecology, and social interaction. Um, of course, the, the, the game being open source, we give the people the opportunity also to be able to design or propose new modules or new elements to insert into the game. Uh, the idea is then not only to allow them to play by themselves, but also to visualize the data and the design proposals of the other citizens. So the idea is to collect the data and be able to visualize maps or proposals for each of the different citizens. Um, and... Uh with that being said, I think I'm, I'm sorry. Thank you very much. So it sounds like a wonderful tool to play with. Uh, so you always want, those of you who always wanted to be an architect or a town planner, here's your chance. And uh, is it coming to uh, um, uh, Melbourne soon or is it in, uh, still in Barcelona? Um, so we've, uh, we've actuated in Barcelona in the Superblock. We've actuated also last year in a city in Italy called Genoa um, for the refurbishment of a very large area. Um, and next year, our Master in City and Technology will actually be focusing on Melbourne um, as a case study. And so we'll be bringing uh, this technology uh, applied to projects in the area uh, for Melbourne. So we're looking forward to that very much. Thank you. Does anyone here have any questions at all? Um, uh, for Matilda. Yeah, okay, well, whilst you're warming up, I will ask the question of how is the Super Barrio game uh, augmenting people, particularly uh, the citizens in, of the city? So um, I guess one of the biggest issues uh, with citizens and the design of public space particularly uh, is that citizens don't know how they can engage to one extent with public space design um, and sometimes they don't speak the language that we use to be able to engage. So the idea of setting up a video game um, is based on the fact that we'd like to give people tools that they can understand and that they can use uh, simply to be able to engage with the design of their public space. So in that sense, uh, it augments them, it gives them more possibility, and it gives them a language that w which allows them to speak with architects um, and urban planners and public entities in a very sort of simple interface. Okay, thank you very much. Anyone else got a question? 
Lady at the back. Hello. So my question would be, I always get asked that question, so I'm going to ask you that question. Isn't it going to be a very specific user group only that you will gather information from if you gather that information via a video game? Um, I think not. Actually, we did a, a public event in the Superblock um, where we engaged with, I think, over 300 people. Um, and there were people both living in the Superblock but also working in the Superblock area um, and just passing through the Superblock. So, um, I mean, there's, there's a specific group in the sense that they're all citizens, um, not necessarily of Barcelona, actually. We had people engaging who were just passing through the Superblock area, uh, visiting. There are a couple of important buildings on the Superblock area. Um, but I don't think there's a specific sort of so the elderlies play your game as well? Yes, okay. we had we had, cool. <laughs> we had all age ranges actually on the Superblock. There's a primary school, so there were young people playing the game. We had elderly people coming through. Uh, we had people asking um, to add new icons such as a bomb because they really didn't like the Superblock idea. Um, but uh, yeah, we had, we had all sorts of people and really like people passing through as tourists, because Barcelona is quite a touristic city, um, and people who were working there and live in other parts of the city, people who actually live there and work in other parts of the city. So it was, it's quite a, a varied community. And I think we had quite good results. I mean, it is pretty user-friendly. I don't know, the tablet's going around, so maybe you can, uh, you can have a go and let us know what you think. Okay, any other questions at all? Maybe this is a technical question, but um, in terms of the data that you get out of it, I would imagine that a lot would also matter of the qualitative and the conversations that you have during, I guess, the exhibitions. Um, is any of that integrated into the game, or is it more just how they built it and, and the outcomes that they have? Okay, so that's actually the next step. So right now the game is based on a single user. Um, the idea is to actually be able to start a conversation between citizens um, on the different design aspects. So the idea now for the next step, and actually Aditi is directing it, so she's probably a better person to answer, um, but the idea is now to integrate the visualization of other people's and start a dialogue on how you imagine your public space and why you chose this and I chose that. Um, and these sorts of things. But up until now, we just have uh, a visualization. Okay, well, I'd like to thank Matilda for kicking off. Thank you, everyone. Our next speaker is Frank Vetter, who's a professor of human-computer interaction, um, and he's at the University of Melbourne. And I'm going to let uh, Frank explain what human-computer interaction is, for those of you who don't know, and uh, talk about virtuality. Thank you, Yvonne. Thanks, Matilda. Thanks, Jenny and um, M Pavilion for hosting. And before I start, I'd also like to thank um, my team of, of, uh, of helpers, Martin and Hassan and Zahir, in this demo. I don't know that I'm going to explain human-computer interaction because um, uh, I, I spend a year. If you want to do a course, you're quite welcome to enrol in our degree. But it's essentially the interaction, all the, all the issues surrounding humans and their interaction with technology. Um, I'd like to, uh, before I start, uh, Yvonne asked you whether everybody's, anybody's got a, a, a smart device. So this is the time to bring it out. This is a really important thing. Please bring out your smart device and go to URL. 
This is going to be essential for, you, for the demo. I invite the guests to do this too, the speakers. So go to the URL, goo.gl, so g-o-o.gl, forward slash, capital A, small d, one, q, lowercase q, three, capital S. That's gwo.gl forward slash capital A, lowercase d, one, lowercase q, three, capital S. That'll take you to a YouTube YouTube stream. And you can press play. You with me? Okay, what you're seeing now is you're seeing... Are we all, are we all on? Okay. What we're seeing is what Martin is seeing. So um, Martin's wearing a HoloLens and he's exploring the space with his HoloLens and you're getting a direct stream through the HoloLens into the space. So Martin's exploring the space. This is a particular type of AR, and I'm happy to talk about AR more generally, but um, there are many types of AR. Uh, there's AR where you can hold a, a mobile device up to a, a, physical, uh, a physical world. There's AR where there's projection onto, onto a physical world. This type of AR is a head-mounted display type AR. And what Martin's doing is he's looking around, and you'll see yourself there. You might see yourself... And he's slowly uh, finding resources around the space. He can allocate things to the space. You might see a window that he's, that he's popped up there. Um, he can pick up things. He's just about to put a ballerina on the carpet. So w- what this is doing is taking virtual objects and integrating them directly into the physical space. Yes, you weren't paying attention, John. Okay, I'll say it again, John. G-O-O.gl forward slash capital A, lowercase d, one, lowercase q, three, uppercase s. Oh, yes, I can kick the, the ballerina. Actually... Jenny, do you want to hold out your hand and we can put the ballerina on your hand? Oh, there she's dancing in front of me. There is a little bit of a d- delay. There's a lag here. Martin slowly will be picking up the ballerina. He's sh- shrinking the ballerina, putting her in, s- in a particular shape. Now he's moving across slowly. Move, keep your hand still, Jenny. No, she won't follow you. You need to keep your hand still. <laughs> um, so the, this, once, once Martin's happy with the ballerina, there she is. She's dancing on Jenny's hand. So this, it's, these are great examples of ways of accessing different sorts of virtual objects. Um, that no, nobody can see unless you have a mobile device. Um, 
the, the mobile device becomes a window into these virtual objects and we are integrating them as we want into the physical world. Um, you might see um, Martin maybe grab some other objects. We can have animated objects, we can have still objects, we can put them on the seat, we can put them in space. Um, and the whole... The, you'll see the way that the interaction metaphors of this system is still very much a Windows-driven type metaphor. Um, those that may recall the early smartphones, they were very much driven, they, they were like mini computers, um, mini Windows machines. And so the, the, the metaphors at the time took some, ti some time for us to evolve into um, the sort of icons that we have today, that are typical today. So the icons we see at the moment, are, I think, are still rather crude. They, 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 they have echoes of what we might see in a desktop. So we still yet to invent and discover and learn about the right ways of interacting in this virtual space and the right way of integrating the physical and the virtual. Um, I think... I've just lost my signal, Martin. Have others lost the signal? No? Good? Great. OK. Um, we can also watch a, a, a video. Martin, is that OK? Great. I'm going to show you a video. Uh, Martin's going to show you a video of a project that we're also working on in our lab um, at the University of Melbourne and a different sort of augmentation where the augmentation's on the body by projecting on the body. And the augmentation is one that we're... Um, the project is one that we're doing with, uh, with physio therapists and they're struggling. Their big problem is trying to reveal aspects of the body that are not apparent and the aspects of the body concern muscles and skeletons that you can imagine are in my body and you know are in my body but you can't see them. So it's, there are ways of revealing those to others through projection mapping by projecting those aspects of my body on me, on, onto me. So this is a video. Uh, we've got an elephant there. What's an elephant doing here? Um, so what we'll do is we'll show you a video um, that, that's a video of a project and it's a video that we're showing you inside a virtual world. And so you can imagine that um, we can start to... And I'm not going to go on and on about it. I'm just going to briefly show you the fact that, that we can... Um, a, sh show v videos inside this space, but B, more, more, more importantly, that there are different types of, of augmentation um, and the augmentation of projection mapping. At the moment, the way you see the virtuality, the way you see the virtual is through the device in your hand and we need a window onto the virtual. Martin sees the virtual through the thing on his head and another way of seeing the virtual is by projecting it, by having data projectors, but we need some way of getting access to the, to, to the virtual. So what Martin's doing is he's typing. We have very clumsy ways of typing with this, this crazy metaphor of having a keyboard in a virtual world makes no sense, but it's, uh, it's the awkwardness that we have at the moment until we have better ways of interacting in virtual worlds. Um, and so we'll, wait for the, we'll just wait for the video to start.
that you might have noticed the way Martin interacts with these systems is but with his hand and with gestures. So there's an odd thing happening how is that you're watching a YouTube stream of another YouTube video. Um, Now, it's hard to see that, but there is a person, there's a person there standing with a projection of the skeleton in front of his body. Uh, that's Twong speaking. And there in the background is a person with a skeleton, and you can start to see the skeleton projected on his body. So what we have is a virtual um, that's made apparent inside the phys- on, on the physical. It's another way of understanding augmentation. All right, I might leave it there. It's always very brave to do a live demo, but I've never seen one quite like that. And apparently there were 26 of you who had signed on. At least that's, uh, unless you got all your students to sign on. So that was very impressive. Um, I'm going to ask you, like I'm asking all of the uh, panelists, um, in what way is augmented reality augmenting uh, humans? I, I love that question. <laughs> um, I don't know, Yvonne, have you read The Third Policeman? by Flann O'Brien. Anyway, there's a book called The Third Policeman by Flann O'Brien and it's a great story but the, it's an Irish story where the policeman rides his bike for many, many years and um, the atoms of the bicycle become part of his bottom and the atoms of his bum become part of the bicycle. And it's like they sort of, they start to fuse and it's, it's, it, it reminds me of notions of augmentation where... Um, People say that their mobile phone is like a prosthesis, like an extension of who they are. They, they, they can't get around without a mobile phone. And you can start to think about how we might engage with other technologies in the, in the world, like we can't get by without cars or we can't get by without electricity. And we can st- start to, to think about other technology in those terms. But um, I, I like to think a little bit more, a little bit differently around this and this gathering around a space and people talking is similar to the sort of gathering that might have been common 100, 200, 1,000 years ago. So there's a sense in which this, what's human remains, remains static. So I don't know that technology is augmenting humans. I'm not sure whether that metaphor is the right m- metaphor. I think what we're getting is tools to do quite extraordinary things. Okay, I think that's a very good answer. But having seen the virtual Frank on the, uh, on the smartphone and the real one, I didn't really know which was which. Uh, any other questions for Frank about augmented reality or any further existentialist questions? <laughs> if not, we actually have run out of uh, Frank's 10 minutes oh, uh, allotted, so you get let off answering any more questions. So once again, can we thank Frank? Okay, our next panellist is uh, Kim, and she is um, a professor of interactive media and is going to be talking again, I think, about virtuality, um, but also dance. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for that fabulous demonstration, the fabulous talk so far. It's wonderful to be here Uh, physically and perhaps potentially virtually as well, um, if that's recording still. (laughs) So uh, 
My name's Kim Vince. I'm from Swinburne University of Technology in Interactive Media. And um, uh, I am going to talk today about embodiment. So I'm going to actually start with the people in the smart cities and work my way through a number of, a number of areas about uh, how that is essentially, I think, about to change radically. So here goes. So embodiment, what is it? The personal sense, participation, control, awareness um, of our bodies underpins and enables everything humans do. We can't move or act in the world without understanding ourselves as embodied beings. And we do this in real time and uh, through perceptual and sensory motor experience and feedback. But the nature of embodiment is about to change, I think radically and irrevocably, uh, through the immersive and sensory modes of interaction that underpin the next wave of HCI. I was hoping you would define it, but... <laughs> Human-computer interaction. But I guess what I mean by that is uh, a coupling of physical processes, whether they're speech, whether they're moving a mouse, whether they're doing an action, whether they're walking, um, whatever they are with computational processes uh, to make things happen. So the thing about, uh, uh, and I'm talking particularly here about virtual reality. So uh, the demonstration that we just had in, a, in the smartphone, of course, we're seeing a flat screen. But the person wearing the lens is not seeing a flat screen. The person who's wearing the lens is seeing everything in depth. And that is, I think, uh, what, the, 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 there's, what the key change is in virtual reality is that suddenly you're inhabiting and working with a computer in a volumetric space, not a flat space. And you're, because your movement is being tracked, at the moment mostly heads and hands, and I'll get to that a bit later, but because your movement is being tracked, you're actually wandering around in the space. And that puts you in a completely different um, relationship uh, to looking at something on a flat screen. Um, most people, well, not everyone, but a lot of people, and I'm, uh, I'm assuming that many people in the audience have had VR headsets on, go kind of wow when they first go on. The, the first reaction is just, oh, wow. And I have to say, as an industry, I think we're still pretty much at that stage. Like, it's fabulous. What on earth do we do with it? Um, but what is that wow? Um, I think it's firstly just a completely different perceptual experience. And I, as, as, as um, it was referred to in my introduction, I am a dancer. So I actually think that that, that reaction is very much about the Z-axis being activated, meaning towards and away. So that it, when you're in a virtual space, in a volumetric space, you can actually sense... You, you see it, but you also sense where your body is and you sense where other people are in the room. And if something were to suddenly sort of fly at me from, from, from my peripheral, you know, I would duck, I would, you know, I would react possibly a bit better than that. That was pretty lame. <laughs> but but uh, uh, what I do think of is when you watch people in VR and also in stereoscopic environments because I've done quite a bit of work in stereoscopic projection which was my way of doing VR before we had VR um, you see people you know they, they touch they, they, they flinch they duck they gasp 
Um, and it's that visceral sense of the body that really activates that. And I think it's just a, diff it's a different quality of perception. So my interest and in some of the examples I'm going to talk to you about are, uh, are what that difference makes possible and how that actually changes what it is to be a human being in your body. Because the thing is, if you're in a virtual environment, the laws of physics don't actually have to hold. So... Uh, you could have an environment where a massive boulder is just light as a feather. You could just flick it. You could walk through it. You could scoop it up and take it with you. Uh, your own body could be as malleable as plasticine. It could stretch to reach way over there. It could float. You could actually float through a sea of data if you wanted to. You could flick things aside you could uh, find things that are so incredibly dense that you can't, um, you can't move them. Um, the, the, the ballerina was getting there a little bit because, of course, she's, um, you know, she's, she's completely the wrong size, she's completely the wrong mass, you couldn't possibly hold her. Of course you could. <laughs> Pressage lift, it's called. Um, but because we weren't seeing that in VR and because we weren't able to actually feel the force feedback from that, we didn't really get that impression. It became, becomes a cognitive um, thing. I, oh, that's really cool. We're holding a dancer. And that is amazing because conceptually what you can do with putting objects in spaces that didn't ought to be there is that you can actually start thinking about those objects differently. So... What, I'm, um, what I've uh, been very interested in for a long time is playing, playing with the laws of physics in virtual reality. And the first way I used to do that was in motion capture because that's basically what motion capture does. You get, you get uh, movement data from a human performer and then you map it onto something else. And that might be King Kong. Um, it might be in the case of um, work I did a few years ago on a, a, an advertisement for Abbott's Bread. We took sausage dogs, and, uh, or one sausage dog, and motion captured the sausage dog. And the sausage dog's movement was then used to drive these really playful little loaves of bread that gamble all around the field in the ad, being happy bread. Um, but essentially what you're doing there is just making a, 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 a mash-up of a virtual mass and a virtual mortho morphology with some um, dynamic movement data that shouldn't be there. And that's the first kind of step down the slippery slope, I think, to changing the way the laws of physics operate or the way we... Not that they operate, but the way that we perceive those laws in, in our bodies. The second uh, sorts of things that, that I got very interested in is... is uh, creating 3D scenography for performances, so for dance and for opera. So what that means is people are sitting with 3D glasses on and watching a performance and the screen is showing them the images behind and in front of the screen. So, for example, with Victorian Opera a few years ago, we did the Flying Dutchman with a full stereoscopic Norwegian fjord behind the screen. Um, that was massive. So the, the actors were completely out of scale and things were flying around where they couldn't possibly be. Um, uh, uh, I have just done The Snow Queen, also with Victorian opera, and The Snow Queen 
uh, was actually created completely out of CG. She was in living, uh, living stereoscopic 3D, floating up around the middle of the stage. And to me, artistically, that's really exciting to just put things that shouldn't be where they, where they are, where they are. I, I particularly enjoyed what I called the cracking man who walked and literally cracked right in the middle of the stage about three metres up. And just what that does to how you see performance, I think, is, is super interesting. But the, the sort of uh, play out of that in VR is what happens when you start to mess with the laws of physics in VR where you actually feel like you're there. And the, 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 um, the, the, a, a key experience that I had has sort of flavoured this kind of thinking and where I'm eventually going with this, this discussion. I was in LA at the IMAX VR lounge and I was doing an experience, some of you may have done it, where the Twin Towers are still intact and there's a tightrope across the Twin Towers and there's a, a little lumpy cord on the floor that makes you feel like that could be the tightrope, but thankfully you are supported on either side. So the experience is that you walk across the tightrope and down below you is, you know, the multiple, multiple story, stories um, down with the pavement below. So the guide said to me, well, once you've done it a couple of times, you know, and you're good with it, um, try, try bending over, try, you know, try going on one leg, you know, try doing a few of those sorts of things. So being, being a dancer, I did. And uh, I will never forget the experience of standing on one leg and looking over and leaning over this thing because I knew it wasn't real. There's no way I would have done that <laughs> if I was actually there. But... I'm looking over at this, this experience and I'm actually feeling what it's doing to my body while I'm doing that. I can actually sense this distance in the way my body is moving. And it's wonderful because I know I won't fall down. I couldn't ever possibly do that in real life. But I'm getting this feeling like I'm so high up and enjoying it. And at that moment, I thought to myself, well... When we start making things in VR that are actually uh, bending the laws of physics and we start to think with these things, so what does it mean to start to think about where objects can be in space when they can't be there in space? And what does the impact on our bodies will we start to build real spaces so that we can put virtual elements in it because we've, we've so started to... Um, explore the world of ha in, a, in a completely different way that's not about selecting things and pointing and clicking but it's about volumes and manipulating forces and physics and I'll stop there very much so I'm going to ask you a slightly different question because I'm sure everyone in the audience wants to know this what is the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Oh, uh, virtual reality is where you're wearing a headset and you can't see the outside world. Augmented reality is where you're wearing a headset and you can see both the outside world and superimposed images. And which one augments humans the most? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think there's... I think they're different, but I don't think one more than the other. I think the minute that something is 
where it shouldn't be and that you can actually interact with it, I think the, it's the, I think the opportunities start to expand from there. And can you mess with the laws of physics more with virtual reality or with augmented reality? Um, well, I think in some ways equally both, because, but uh, if you can see the real world, then you've got that reference. Um, so I, I would say virtual reality probably, although I also think people are pretty smart. There's a kind of a fear that people will be so immersed in virtual reality that, you know, you'll think it's real. And you know it's not. You might, you, 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 you might have the physical reactions like um, doing a, a haunted house. There was a horror one and I knew, I knew the ghost was coming but I still screamed. Uh, but, I th- but, but you know it's not real, so... I can see the real audience around me. And is there anyone in the real audience who would like to ask a question? Yes. Um, because you're a dance person, that you were talking about the feedback loops that we get um, that shift our perceptions. And it, it seems that mostly the feedback loops are, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, weight or, or mm-hmm. you know, that kind of push-pull, mm. but also sight. In mm-hmm. terms of all the other senses, is there other opportunities for all of the other senses to to be part of that process, or or is that all too emergent? Yeah, no. Or is ab- that just yeah. theatre? No, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, it, yeah, it just depends on how how you construct it, but absolutely. And I think the more multisensory, probably the better. Um, if that answers the question, yes, you can certainly add smell. So you, I'm just can wondering. Add, you can add ambisonic sound. Well, I wouldn't say add. You can integrate. So, yeah, absolutely. We're going to move away from the headset soon, aren't we? There's going to be something We else. hope so. Yeah. Okay, any more questions? Uh, the lady who gave me water. Thank you. If I may, I happen to do a project uh, with a dance philosopher at uh, the Berlin uh, Humboldt University. And we invited two professional dancers, and I'm an HCI and virtual reality designer. So we're trying to play together with it. Now, the most difficult thing I find when you work interdisciplinary is always the wording. So I would wonder how you would define physicality as a person who's in both disciplines. Because we kind of talked about physicality, and we talked about the difference of how we work with metaphors. So a dancer feels metaphors, feels like it has bubbles in his body or something. And I, as a visual designer, I think of metaphors really differently. So I see a whole kind of set, and I see an image I'm trying to project. So can you help me maybe a little bit with what physicality would be? That's that's such an interesting question, because actually the question, what is physicality or what could it be, is actually what has driven uh, dance development for decades. So... As soon as you think you know what it is, a choreographer will come up with a new way of being in the world. I mean, that's how I actually understand contemporary choreography. It's not about things that I can motion capture, which are gestures or positions or, you know, um, to quote Cunningham, points in space. Um, uh, uh, It's about how you constitute the body uh, body self in that and that's cultural it's social it's aesthetic um, it's anything that you that a choreographer wants to explore so no wonder it's hard 
<laughs> you know, I don't think those definitions are stable in dance, is what I'm saying. So I guess, and I've done those sorts of projects quite a lot as well. And I think, I think, I think, I think it pro it probably is about, um, as with most collaborations, really just talking it through and trying to understand. Because you often will say the same word, but it doesn't mean the same thing in the same context. Yeah, is that the Hollow Dance project? No, a different. Ah, yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Okay, I think uh, time is up. We'd like to give you a big round of applause. Thank you very much. So from virtual reality to robots, our next uh, panelist is Leon Sterling, who started off as a mathematician and is now into robots. Over to you. Okay. So, uh... um, if anyone wants to go and get a drink while somebody's talking, we're not going to be offended. So, if you really are desperate to get something to drink, please wander to the shop because there is someone there. Thank Before you. Before I start talking about robots, just say what a pleasure it is to be here and to be in Melbourne, where on a warm summer afternoon we've got a pop-up space and people are celebrating instant technology. It's fantastic, and it's great to be part of it. Um, it's always a bit experimental. We don't know exactly what space it is and how to demonstrate a robot. Um, this is our standard demo, so I'll see if, she, if uh, we'll speak. Action. Entertain. Inform. Hello, my name is Rosie. I am a now robot. Swinburne University of Technology uses me for a variety of applications. I will tell you about some of my features and their uses. My 25 degrees of freedom and advanced sensor network allowing ways. Swinburne uses this to help children with rehabilitation at the Royal Children's Hospital. I can be programmed with a simple block-based programming language. This means that anyone can program me. Swinburne runs classes with me and my friends to teach kids programming. My ability to be animated means that I can express emotions in dramatic ways. This can be used to help children with autism learn to read people's emotions. I can be sad. <laughs> or happy. My two high-definition cameras and voice recognition allow me to recognize people objects and instructions. I can be used in the classroom to play flashcard games and help teach. I am also an expert at communication. My voice synthesizer allows me to speak many different languages. And as I have shown you, I am very expressive with my hands. Thank you for to my presentation. I have a number of interactive programs installed, so please come up and say hi to me. So I bought, um, uh, the dean of ICT bought five of these robots just to see what would happen for people to engage with them. And besides being very photogenic, uh, it, most publicity brochures love having photos of these robots. We've used them from a range of different projects. Um, the one thing is they're really a triumph of design. So I really love these robots. They were built by a company called Aldebaran Robotics who had a vision for having a personalized assistant. 
And they realised that if you wanted to have a sensible, personalised assistant, it had to engage emotionally. So you could actually see the voice and all of the hand gestures are really cute. They actually engender an emotional response from people. It's just engaging. Um, if we've got time, um, you watch it see Gangnam-style dancing, which is actually really quite amazing. You look at it and you can't help yourself but smile because it's just uh, a bit incongruous, but it's really very charming and just everyone reacts positively to it. So what have we used it to? There was a little bit there. One was to inspire people to study robotics and STEM, and that's part of what we want to look at. But how can they help people? So um, one of the ideas, leading people in exercises, and indeed these uh, dresses that Jenny commented early on were brought along uh, when our colleague Sonia Padel took the robots out to the Wyndham Senior Alzheimer's Group to see if it would lead them in exercises. And people said, ah, you're sceptical. Why would old people want to be engaged with a robot? What will actually happen with them? And surprisingly, it was a bit of reluctance um, initially, and we thought, ah, you know, maybe they'll get into it. But what happened was they remembered it. And people that were having a bit of struggle with memory, having the robots do the exercises with them were memorable. It did actually motivate them for more activity, more than you might expect. The project which has been most interesting, um, I mentioned, we've been running for about three years um, using the robots in conjunction with the Victorian Paediatric Rehabilitation Centre at Royal Children's Hospital. And we actually brought them in. We originally got a grant from the Transport Accident Commission to see would it help children with their recovery. And for the first few months, we just had the robot in the corridor and see how children would respond to them. Some of them was actually cute. There was one really scared kid that was hiding between its mother's leg. Sometimes how kids are with dogs. Interested, but also a bit scared and timid. The other ones really engaged very well with them. But we realised, um, so while they're cute, their language capabilities aren't quite as good as you would like, and children can be hard to understand. So what they've been used for is leading children through exercises. So it can do a whole range of mainly leg strengthening exercises where it will do bridge, lifting your leg. Okay. <laughs> doesn't like me at the moment. So what you actually do, you put it down, you tap its head, and it will actually practice lifting, lifting its leg, and the children will follow it. And uh, we're doing a qualitative study to see how effectively those exercises will be in helping children with their activity. And, and it's promising. Now, some people are a little bit ho-hum. As children get older, they're perhaps a little less interested. But it's been overwhelmingly positive for parents and children. And we're actually having an interface, and it's probably something to expect in the future, where parents will able to borrow a robot to help their child with the rehabilitation exercise. Of course, that ranges kinds of ethical issues. What kind of medical device is it? What is the danger and safety? As with all new technologies, um, it asks lots of questions that we're not quite ready to answer, but it's good we have the conversation. You can be quiet. Sometimes, sometimes it works being quiet. Okay, I might stop there. Thank you very much. If only you could stop children from screaming by touching their toes like that. That would be wonderful. Um, why do you think that children will obey? 
So it's doing stuff, yeah. Clearly, uh, they are behaving just like children. Uh, well, she's standing is actually quite remarkable, and you, you never know. The whole line is never appear before children, dogs, or robots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you: yeah. How do you think robots robots are augmenting people? So, you know, thank you. Uh, a very question. So, one of the things you hear a lot with robots are robots are going to replace us, are going to take all of the jobs. National Australia Bank announced it was getting rid of 2,000 jobs to be replaced by artificial intelligence and robots. Now, you'd probably, that robot's so cute, you don't think it's going to replace you. But it's actually the wrong question. And um, I think it's a real shame. There's always been a bit of a tension in artificial intelligence research with those that are trying to replace us and those that are trying to augment us. And that's really part of what they can do. So for the robot, it's just not replacing a therapist. When a therapist can't be there, it's reminding the therapist of activities that they can do. Or just a little bit of novelty to be encouraged to do an exercise. That's what the robot is able to do. Uh, one of the other exercises that we've thought about is having a robot in a classroom where children can read to a robot. Even if it doesn't understand, there's something positive to it. Indeed, there'd be studies reading to dogs are very helpful for reading. So I think that's what they are. They're kind of more interesting devices that augment the environment around us and can help us um, yeah, do things more effectively. Okay, thank you. Does anyone in the audience have a, a question, either for Leon or the robot? Thank you. I think uh, your presentation is the one touching more the, um, the AI, the artificial intelligence, although we don't see yet the clear signs of how the robot can start to learn from the patterns and start, have, start having more cognitive, let's say, decisions, no? But I won't take it there. I will take it somewhere else. So uh, I will take it to the AI. And I will take it to the, AI, to the AI in terms of how robotics can start... I mean, let me rephrase. I'm more jet lag than anybody, I think, here. But, um, you know, Ray Kurzweil has been talking about transhumanism, how robots is not just augmenting our capacities, but they just start also to have intelligence and, and cognitive decisions. And on the other hand, there it comes Donna Haraway that she says that, by the way, the robots are not going to take over us, but they're going to become our slaves or our pets, no? And I want to ask your opinion, where do you think that the smart robots or the robots that they have integrated AI will be? in the future in relation to the human? So I think what we can do, and it's a bit like what Frank said, design better tools for ourselves. So even all of the smartness, I don't think it's replacing us. We get very, very good tools. So everyone's got a smartphone. How many people use Siri? So some number of it. Do you find it helpful? Yeah, on the whole, yes. But let me tell you, Siri does not understand you. It may give you an appropriate response, but in no way is it really understanding a range of things. It's just got this huge database of patterns, so it's useful to give you appropriate responses, and it's helpful. And that doesn't mean, again, and I think people are too quick to see quite an impressive building tool to decide, oh, machines are going to replace us. Recent, about a year ago, there was a fantastic achievement where a computer program playing Go played better than a human master. 
fantastic. I never thought that would happen in my AI research career. But that Go program won't play chess. It's not going to take over. What it's been done is been trained on patterns, and it turns out that it's a hard game for patterns so they can find interesting patterns. So people can apply it to then find patterns better than I can, but it hasn't replaced my intelligence in the range of activities that it has. What it's done is learn how to solve the task, which I didn't know how to solve well. And I think that's true for a lot of them. We should think about what tasks it's useful for, and I wish there was much less conversation about how they're going to replace us, because I don't think that's the right way to proceed. I read that uh, robots can't even uh, crack open an egg. So there's a long way to go yet uh, before they become truly smart. But I'd like to thank uh, Leon again for, uh, again, a very brave live demo. Okay, our last but certainly not least panelist is uh, Mark Burry here, and he's going to uh, talk about smart cities again. Thank you, Yvonne. Um, Being last... uh, most of what I want to talk about has been talked about, actually. So I can put a provocative spin on some of it, as you've requested. Um, I, I direct the Swinburne uh, University Smart Cities Res- uh, Research Institute. And, um, of course, we, as a Smart Cities Research Institute, know all about smart cities. In terms of augmentation, uh, one of the sort of elephants in the room about augmentation is what happens if you de-augmentify, if that's the word, and find yourself disappointed with what's left. So I was going to um, think about um, going to the other end of the spectrum of the smart city, which is the smart citizen, and uh, what about the smart citizen who's not smart enough yet? Uh, as we've heard, the, um, the, the, um, the, the... Or as we know... By 2020, 80% of all adults in the world will have smartphones. And by 2022, that's according to The Economist, and by 2022, according to the Ericsson Mobile Review that's just out, 70%, 75%, I think, of all human beings of all ages will have a smartphone. So that means that we actually have been given a portal to information. Uh, and not only that, the smartphone, as you know, is bristling with with sensors, so we're giving out information. So when we look at the standard definition of a smart city, which um, Yvonne gave us at the beginning, and I I don't uh, demur, I did try and see if I could get a definition that had three words beginning with E in it. So we we know about smart cities give you efficiency through an augmentation of uh, daily uh, lives through technology, but they also give experience. That's another opportunity. We get new experiences, and one thing which we should be getting, but I'm not sure that we are yet, is equity. And I think that's one of the reasons why in our institute we want to focus on the smart citizen and see whether there's equity that comes in. Now, the smart city has been uh, invented for us, as it were, by the corporations such as Cisco and IBM, who benignly have introduced the, inf- uh, the Internet of Things, these sensors that give all sorts of information that help us get real-time feedback about everything, traffic, whatever, trams. Um, It is very uh, passive. Uh, We are the passive benefactors, but we also might be the inadvertent stooges. And at lunch, I was hearing from our our guests from Catalonia that apparently um, 
in the, I don't use the, um, what's the opposite of iOS, the other one? There's the iOS for Apple and then there's Google something. Android, yes. Apparently, um, even when you've turned off the location feature, it's still live. And this is a scandal that's breaking. Maybe it's still breaking in Europe and hasn't got it to us yet. But these are the things that you know, we worry about, isn't it? We, we think that uh, it's all benign, but actually it could be quite, quite not working for us. So how do we turn this round? How do we get the smart citizen to become an active participant? And how do we think about the cities designed with the, the uh, citizen rather than for the citizen? So we're looking at sort of new ways of participation and, and Matilda's actually introduced games and gamification. We and the Institute are definitely very keen to get a pilot project that will go across the whole of the university and, and beyond, which will look at the game and the game environment as an opportunity to go beyond the questionnaire. And it's not the question that the game is specifically taking the, 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 the gamer on a journey that they understand as being a smart city exploration. Actually, it's simply entertaining them. But um, maybe I'm melding a little bit of the last um, presentation from Leon. How, how do we actually get artificial intelligence to get a sense of who the player is, what their predilections are, what they want, what they believe, beyond what they actually understand is within their conscious beliefs? We're sure that actually a lot of information will be revealed for the designers. So it's not a question about um, enfranchising the, the smart citizen to become the designer. It's just to help them be more effective in working with the experts who are the designers. So um, we need to think about um, also how to get people who aren't keen on their smart technology. They've got a smartphone, they use it as a phone, but they don't use it for anything smart. Now, that's quite a big group. Um, there's a, you know, a range of the elderly, there's a range of the physically um, less capable. There are very young. These are people who would automatically not necessarily make full use of their smartphones, who would be excluded from any citizen inquiry that's tending towards the smart citizen. So what are the strategies that we might use to get everybody involved? Well, one thing that uh, we know that pretty much everybody, uh, with exceptions, but uh, like to do is form communities. They like to have ownership of their situation. And the other thing is we are naturally competitive. So is there a way, and this is how I'm going to finish, is there a way that we can actually get people who wouldn't necessarily engage with their apps because they seem too complicated, who are frightened by their, pho their phone because it's smart, smarter than them, perhaps we can get them to compete. Perhaps we can get folk to understand that um, if they make certain moves in their, the way they run their house, they will use less water and they will see how much less water they're using against their own records, and they can see it against their neighbours. Perhaps the water companies themselves could actually incentivize communities to use less water by rewarding them. So the, I was just come back from a, a community discussion similar to the one here in Manchester in the UK, so I too have my share of being jet-lagged, not that you'll notice. Um, and we discussed what is it you'd do to get people to understand that their phone is worth more than it appears to be and not a frightening uh, object. And we were thinking about these strips that have appeared on some of the new Mac um, laptops, which have these extraordinary um, banners. You can use them as the, the, the tool, um, you know, the menu. Maybe there are situations where we're waiting for things, like waiting in the supermarket in a queue with a trolley. We could actually have one of these banners reminding us on the 
on the supermarket trolley of ways that we can use our phone to make better decisions about what we're buying and cheaper. Maybe when we're in a dentist's waiting room or queuing up for a job, we get a, a simple way of being reminded that there are ways to reduce your costs through a competitive process. So that's what I think part of the smart city challenge is, is the smart citizen who is all of us, not just those who are digitally gifted. Thank you. Thank you much. Um, on, message? Uh, <laughs> on message? Definitely on message. How can we make people uh, use their phones uh, more smartly, but also for those who may be fearful of technology um, and to get them to see what the potential is? But I'm going to ask you, like I've asked all the panelists, how is this going to augment people and empower them? As I said at the beginning, the, what we want from augmentation is it adds something to us benignly that we don't become dependent on. So our augmentation obviously means adding value or adding opportunity. So for me, augmentation it has to be something which is uh, improving on what you have, but not in a way that's going to make you dependent. Are there any questions in the audience? Um, is that a, a, an arm or a, fly, a fly? Okay. <laughs> So I'm going to ask you about one of the first smart technologies that came out into our cities, and they've been rolled out in Europe and Australia and the US, which is smart meters. And I know in Australia a couple of years ago, there are a lot of people who are frightened of smart meters for what radioactive or uh, radio waves that they might emit, collecting the data about your use, and didn't want to use them. They thought they were giving them uh, uh, health problems, headaches and nosebleeds. And people in the UK use them for about a week. They could show you how much energy you're using and when was a good time to use it because it was cheaper. And then after a week or two, they got bored and they put it in a cupboard and not many people are using their smart meters in the way in which it was intended. So how do we get people to keep using their smartphones to do all of these new things? Well, I think we incentivize through competition. So if you do take a notice of what your meter is telling you, you get some financial advantage. How many of you would uh, take up this if you knew you were going to be rewarded? How many of you would try and use less water or less electricity if you were going to get vouchers for free coffees? Quite a few of you. So maybe you're right there. Might that be onto something. You might be onto something. Okay, any other questions at all for Mark? If not, let's give him a round of applause. And we are now at that stage uh, where um, we can have a general discussion or you can go to the bar and get yourself a drink. So is there anyone here who's got a burning question about whether we should be aiming for smart cities or smart citizens, whether VR is better than AR, whether the future is not robots taking over the world, but we uh, have robots as our companions, as our friends, and as our, uh, our, our playmates helping and incentivizing us to do our exercises and maybe even to uh, uh, help us reduce our energy consumption. So those of you who think we should be aiming for smart citizens. None of you. Oh, yes. Sorry, I should have said raise your hand. <laughs> I thought uh, my friend robot over here would help me. How many of you think that the large corporations like IBM uh, should continue to try and make our city smart? Uh, raise your hands. One of you, two of you. Okay, 
The, the, the answer isn't either or. I think what we want is, is a mix of both. We can try and use um, Internet of Things smart technology um, to try and uh, make our cities more efficient, particularly uh, for transportation. If we can just reduce congestion, um, especially in cities like Melbourne, I think that will be a great uh, thinking about how we can do that. But also, it's really important, as we've heard, to engage um, citizens in, in a variety of ways. So would any of my panellists here like to add uh, to this debate? Or do you think you've, you've all said succinctly what you wanted to? They've all got jet lag. So anyone know a good cure for jet lag? Glass of wine. Okay. Are there any questions at all? If not, I am going to uh, thank again our great set of panellists and leave you thinking about what is smart and what's the way forward. And then I'm now going to then hand over to Jenny, who's going to finish off. Thank you. So I would also like to really thank Yvonne for taking over this uh, challenge of running the panel today and meeting these new people that she's just worked with today. Um, I would also like to thank the um, Faculty of Health, Arts and Design at Swinburne University for sponsoring um, Yvonne's stay here during this week and she's been involved with quite a few activities. So that's great. So Swinburne University has also sponsored stuff to do with the M Pavilion, so thank you, Swinburne. And thank you, um, Melbourne University, for uh, giving Frank's time and all these boys who are doing all this exciting techie stuff. So um, if you want to catch up with us, there's, of course, the details on the um, postcard, information about the smart cities. There's also the hashtags and, and Twitters. You can sort of follow what we, how we work with interaction design from now on. Um, we'll be posting stuff as it happens, more events in the future. And also just to let you know that at 5.30 in this same pavilion, there will be a follow-on looking at the smart city aspect. So we were focusing on smart citizens. There will be another panel happening at half past five talking about responsive cities and looking at smart cities. Okay, and thank you all for coming. And